This week on the Back Table Podcast. I think I think one of the points you touched on when you what you touched on when you said something about local personalities. I, I think that geography plays a big part in it. You know, I think of New Orleans as I wouldn't say it's an underserved area, but I mean not by any stretch. Um, but I think there's less competition here than in some of the places like uh, our practicing uh, interventional uh, cardiologists and radiologists in places like the Northeast or California or um, some more major metropolitan areas. I think when there's less work to go around, then it more becomes a turf battle. Yeah. I think that we've done some podcasts in, in the past when we've talked to people who are in, in extremely underserved areas and they're like, turf battles don't exist. We're just dying to get someone who can help. Right. It, it's all about you know right. finding someone who can help and has the patient's best interest at heart. I, and so, you know, my advice is, or maybe not advice, but my observation is that, you know, if you just always go in, think of the patient first and, and try and be friendly and collaborative, you'll, you'll find out what kind of environment you're in pretty quickly. I think for our generation, you can tell by this, this podcast, it's, it's, there's a little bit less, uh, war going on and, and more kind of, um, uh, friendship and, and support. And, and, uh, I think that's certainly true for interventional radiology and interventional cardiology. That's been my experience. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Backtable podcast. Backtable is your resource to connect with your endovascular colleagues and learn tips, techniques, and the ins and outs of the devices in your cabinet. This is Aaron Fritz returning as host, and I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Dr. Charles Sahai from the uh, from Tulane, the Tulane Interventional Cardiology Department in New Orleans, and Dr. Chris Beck with Regional Radiology in New Orleans, Louisiana. Welcome, guys. Um, before we dive into our topic today, just want to say a quick word from our sponsor, RadPad. RadPad was developed by physicians for physicians, clinically proven radiation protection during CINE and digital subtraction and geography. Don't bet your career or your health on anything less. Trust RadPad radiation protection shields for all your floral guided interventions. See radpad.com for more information and contact info at radpad.com for a free radiation evaluation, and a no-brainer radiation protection cap. And let them know that you heard about it on the Backtable podcast. Um, and before we get started, Chris and Achal, do you guys do anything special for radiation protection or do you use the RadPad stuff? I don't do anything special, to be honest. I have my lead and my uh, my lead shields. Uh, I've had an interesting experience with the um, the uh, weightless, weightless lead system at the VA hospital, which is... Uh, more of a problem than it is a help, but no, my experience is pretty general, basically. Oh, so you don't like the waitlist setup? Yeah, you know, it's. I think it'd be good if I was a single operator. Uh, I've had problems with. Uh, we have a lot of fellows in our program, and people switching positions at the table from first, second, third, and rotating, and that that causes an issue. Ah, uh, gotcha. Okay. Well, yeah. If you're interested, uh, reach out to these Rad Pack guys. They they make a lot of disposable radiation protection. Um, materials as well as you know the 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 skull cap is kind of nice to protect your head uh, what about you chris didn't you get didn't you reach out to these guys so i did so in short i'm i'm pretty similar to a shawl in that it's just basic stuff and that wear the lead and then try and remember to put the lead shield up on a consistent basis i don't use anything special i did reach out to the rad pad guys they sent me some uh skull caps it's a, radiation exposure is a bit of a, a mystery to me, as silly as it sounds to say, you know, we step in lead boxes on a daily basis and we do our basic things, but you know, the risk of certain tumors or, um, um, 
malignancies uh, related to radiation. It's, it's really unclear to me what our risk is when we go in there. Did you guys get training on that in fellowship or anything? You know, we certainly did. I think the boxes were ticked, yeah. but I don't know, um, you know, how much of it has, uh, has stayed with me. And I think the details were a bit vague too. And I, I think it's because it's unknown right. to, a, to a certain degree. I agree. The only thing, I guess one of the things I do that I am very consistent about is leaded glasses. Yeah. And actually that's really born out of eye protection necessity. Cause even when I'm in non radiation procedures, like ultrasound procedures, I consistently wear them, but I don't, that would be my only form of eye protection otherwise. And it just has to be the, it just happens to be the same pair of leaded glasses that I wear all the time. But I have talked to older radiologists and older interventional radiologists slash cardiologists who have developed you know, radiation-induced cataract. So, yeah, I, I always wear lead glasses. Yeah. I think that's that that is one area that's sure. a little clearer: the risk for for cataracts mm-hmm. as we expose ourselves to radiation. Well, let's jump into the topic for today, um, and we, the reason why we have uh, a chaw and interventional cardiologist, as well as um, myself and Chris as IRs, is we want to talk about collaboration between the two specialties. There's a lot of talk out there about turf wars over, you know, different types of procedures. And um, I wanted to, I wanted to bring these guys on to talk about ways that where we can collaborate um, rather than compete. Just to start off about our lab setups, are you guys in shared labs or have you had, if not now, or have you had shared labs in the past? So when I was in training, it was almost exclusively IR was completely separate from radiology. And so switching over from academics where I did training into private practice, it was kind of adjustment. But I now all the hospitals that I rotate through in an interventional capacity, it shared um, labs with interventional radiology and cardiology. And then sometimes, um, although much less so, occasional vascular surgeon um, or the general surgeon who does dialysis access. Like they, they there's some um, surgeons in our practice who create AV grafts or fistulas, and then they will continue to see those patients up for routine maintenance and or declots. Uh, you know, I, I rotate through uh, three hospitals um, and they're all academic. Two of them are major medical centers and then a VA hospital. Our catheterization lab space is shared. Um, with interventional radiology, vascular surgery does their endovascular procedures there that they don't do in the OR, um, and uh, and neurosurgery actually shares shares space with us. So so I've been in a shared space in in this position. I've had a previously I was in private practice, and uh, the IR suite uh, was shared for my endovascular procedures were done in the IR suite, and then there was our cardiac cath suites were separate from everybody else. Gotcha. Yeah. And so I guess my next question is, um, what have you guys experienced being any sort of logistical advantages or disadvantages of, of being in a shared lab? Um, just quickly share my experience early on. I remember coming out in a private, out of fellowship where it was exclusive IR as, as you mentioned, Chris, and then going into private practice where pretty much every lab I was in was shared. I remember some of my uh, older, more senior partners, um, warning me that the, the, I, you know, the ICs, the cardiologists would be, you know, might steal our cases to watch, to watch out for them. And, uh, you know, I had never heard that before. I had, I'd, I'd heard of turf wars, but I'd never really experienced anything like that. And 
Um, so then, but after several months of working in the shared labs and seeing some other, you know, some, some cardiologists and uh, in the lab and talking about cases, introducing one another, um, I actually quickly found out that they were extremely helpful. You know, this, there were certain ones that were very helpful and we ended up collaborating on several cases. Um, some, you know, some of them were like tricky filter retrievals or DVT thrombolysis cases. There's one cardiologist who had started a PE uh, program, uh, you know, PE lysis program and, and wanted to work together on that. And um, there was another I, uh, IC that um, uh, was teaching me how to do radio access. And so I didn't, you know, to me, it came down mostly to personality, but, you know, any, any advantages or disadvantages to sharing a lab? I'll start with you, Achol. Yeah, so um, I'll start with disadvantages because I, I personally don't believe there's many, um, you know, that, that may be unique to, to my perspective. But, you know, the main issue would be cath lab time, right, and staff, essentially, and whose case is going when. You know, as a cardiologist, usually I have enough work that I'm not just trying to crank out my cases and take off. I can, I can fill up, uh, you know, waiting periods with other, other work that needs to be completed. So I think that's the major disadvantage is, is kind of getting your cases in and having to wait sometimes. Uh, to me, there, there are huge advantages in sharing space with, with interventional radiology and even vascular surgery, to be honest. I think it's, it's, um, you know, the, some of the advantages are obvious, right? A flow of information, discussion of cases, running things by each other, and then support. I think, um, you know, there's so many of us doing endovascular work nowadays that, you know, none of the, the minority of us are doing, you know, 500 arterial interventions or lower extremity interventions, whatever, whatever, um, you know, uh, vascular bed we're talking about. And so it's nice to, to bounce ideas off people and talk to, talk to people about whether it's wires, catheters, devices, and, and, you know, it's a, it's just, it's been a supportive environment. That's always been my interaction with interventional radiology and the systems I've been, been in. Yeah, I actually echo Ashal's sentiment in that disadvantages are exactly what he mentioned. It's a scarcity of resources and staff and, and kind of angling for cath lab time or when cases go. Uh, uh, in our cath lab, first start is always kind of a contentious subject. But overall, it's I've, I've really enjoyed uh, sharing uh cath lab space with cardiology. I think it's, I think it's very personality dependent and it just so happens that it, uh, the two main hospitals that I rotate through, it's just a good bunch of guys and everyone's interested in getting in, getting their cases done. And if there happens to be time where we can sit around, collaborate, discuss cases, then all the better for the patients. Yeah. And, um, it, Achal, you did mention something that I had thought about uh, recently was um, the the staff, right? So if you're in a lab where most procedures are being done by cardiology, the, those nurses and techs are more kind of cardiology focused and they seem to be, in my experience, more resistant to doing, you know, or wanting to do IR cases or learning IR cases because uh, the cardiology cases... Uh, tend to be a little bit more streamlined. And, you know, if you ask them to then go and do some complex GI bleed, they're, they're a little bit thrown out of their loop. So that was one disadvantage I, I thought of recently. And I don't know if you guys have had issues with that on, on either side, cardiology or IR. 
Yeah, I, I have experienced that. We definitely in in our mixed labs we have teams that you know are more IR teams um, or more coronary coronary teams. And you know sometimes when you end up with some of the staff from the from 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 a different team, you know there's a little bit of um, you know they're they're not as as responsive as as you would like, and especially when things get complicated or you start pulling out devices and and you need the support of the staff, it can be. It can be challenging at times, but I, you know, I think that's the future of, you know, that's, that's the world we live in now. I think most of these, everybody's doing cases right now, like neurosurgery, there's been a big, um, you know, push for acute stroke care and management in the endovascular suite. And, you know, and that's, um, that's seemingly increasing. And I think as hospitals try to try to be more profitable and there are many different call teams, we're all going to have to be in the same space. I don't know if that makes sense, but. It's been my experience that and this was just with my cath lab teams is that a lot of the a lot of the techs thought of themselves as uh, cardiology first and IR second. Right. It, it took a, it took a long time and it took a, a kind of a culture shift. And, and also it, it part of it was our practice and that we we had to do work, uh, the interventional radiologists in terms of educating our staff and growing our practice to help these help these guys get comfortable in interventional radiology procedures. And, and one of the challenges I think that the, the cath lab techs and the cath lab nurses faced was an interventional radiology practice can just be a huge breadth of procedures and some procedures that just do not come up that often. And so some of the times, you know, if, if you're talking about doing a lymph angiogram, you know, it, it just doesn't come up all that often, at least in our practice. And so, you know, people are kind of looking at you like, what the heck are we doing here? But that being said, I think for your bread and butter cases and for the cases that come up um, not as frequently, but on a semi-regular basis, it just took a lot of education on our part to explaining what we were doing beforehand and how this was translatable. I, one of the things that jumps to mind is my IR team always, or my cath lab teams always struggled with the difference between when we were doing a declot and when we were doing like routine fistulagram maintenance. And it took a long time before they got the difference and like how these two were going to be wildly different in terms of how much time we needed to allocate and then what they needed to have open on the table and ready. Um, I, I think that's just one of the struggles that, that comes across and having, you know, IR has a huge breadth of procedures. And then you add on endovascular procedures from interventional cardiology, vascular surgery and neurosurgery. But I agree with Ashal on that. I think that's, this is the space that we're moving and the expectation is going to be more and more that, you know, cath lab techs and nurses be expected to be more educated on almost uh, maybe uh, almost everything that we do. Yeah. Yeah. I I really think they need to be um, nowadays because there's, you know, the, the demand is high. And- right. And then there's the cost of having separate labs and separate uh, teams, you know, on-call teams. Um, but that has been an issue here in Dallas is the burnout for techs and nurses, because if they're expected to take, I, you know, I STEMI call with the ICs and the, you know, and then additional IR call, which could be GI bleeds and tips and all kinds of other crazy stuff, you know, that, that can be exhausting for these guys. And now and, a huge stroke call too, right? right which is very yeah. profitable, and hospitals are trying to. Yeah, so I don't know if that trickles down to the techs and nurses, but it doesn't. It seems like that's a, a big griping point um, from what I've heard and from what I've seen. So a lot of them have gone to the industry, right? And they 
they then get a job, you know, working for, uh, you know, you know, device company. Um, we de- we definitely have a supply and demand issue in in New Orleans. I don't know if you feel this, Chris, but we have a huge uh, proportion of traveling techs and nurses. Right at at both our major major medical centers, you have this you know core group that's local and is, is staying long term, but uh, there's a large percentage of of travel uh, employees supporting these labs. And so totally yeah. agree. Although. In some respects, we, we've had a traveler nurse that's been with us over a year. He had to take a break at some point because of some regulations. But some of the traveling techs that we have, I mean, they can, like anybody, they can vary in, in terms of talent and experience level. But some of our travelers have been incredible resources for some of our younger, uh, less experienced uh, local techs. And they're the, you know, the flexibility, ironically, yeah. of the traveling uh, techs and nurses is, fun- is fantastic. Right. Right. They yeah. can, they can manage a lot versus, you know, um, uh, an older, uh, tech or nurse who's been in one lab their entire career thinks it's the only way to do it. Right. And, uh, we all know that's not true. There's many ways to do all the things we do. That's a great point. You're right. A lot. Mostly it's, I've been most impressed with the travel, uh, nurses and techs for sure. So I I did want to touch on what, you know, we perceive as turf wars and kind of what kinds of cases that, that falls on, you know, falls under a turf, you know, turf war. And, um, I was wondering, you know, from the IR perspective, what, where, where you see in New Orleans, uh, Chris, and may, and from the IC perspective, what you're, what you see out there, um, in the, even in the academic setting, Charles, let's start with Chris. For whatever reason, in, in the main hospital that I'm at, which is Tour Infirmary located in the, the Metro New Orleans area, it's, there, we really don't have a lot of turf battles, and I don't know if that just speaks to the practice that the the cardiologists and some of the IRs have developed at the hospital. But there's there's not a lot that we battle over. I mean, there's a lot of cases that we share, um, and but for whatever reason, I, it's never been a case where I thought anyone was angling for different procedures that I do. Um, there was at one point when. I was getting interested in doing uh, more uh, peripheral vascular disease. And there were two cardiologists in particular that I had a pretty good working relationship with. And I talked about uh, getting into the space and they, they, they welcomed it. And they, they thought there, it was their opinion that, you know, high tides raise all boats. And that if, if I wanted to get in the space, they thought there was enough work to go around for everybody. The other, and so besides peripheral vascular disease, which I think is something classically people will talk about, you know, quote unquote, turf war. Um, one of the things that was a very different practice pattern from when I got to my main hospital was that we weren't, in, or interventional radiology wasn't involved at all in IBC filter placement. Um, admittingly, this didn't really hurt my feelings one way or the other. Um, and sometimes I've even filled in in inpatient uh, setting or um, on-call cases that happen to come up. And for whatever reason, an intern uh, or a new internist consults me instead of cardiology, I've gone in and put in a filter. It doesn't take all that long. It's, it's not all that onerous. And the cardiologists have absolutely no hard feelings about that. I took one of their IVC filter cases away, which is in my hospital, one of, one of the cases that they're more responsible for, or people think more cardiology than interventional radiology. Um, yeah. So, you know, my experience with turf wars, I think for our generation, you can tell by this, this podcast, it's, it's, there's a little bit less uh, war going on and, and more kind of um, uh, 
friendship and, and support. And, and uh, I think that's certainly true for interventional radiology and interventional cardiology. That's been my experience. You know, you'll see the older generation guys, and I'm sure this is tied to money and, um, and, uh, and maybe private practice, maybe not, but they seem to, to get territorial over, over um, these things at times. I don't, I don't know that it, it matters so much for me. Vascular surgery, I've probably had um, more of more issues with it. They're not all bad, but I think there's kind of a systemic feeling within that society that, you know, they're worried about their, um, you know, their patient populating patient population being overtaken by other specialties, you know, especially interventional cardiology. So there's this general consensus that I've experienced that, you know, we're the guys you're not right. And that I've come, come up against the time. That's not everybody. I think, you know, there's a lot of um, young vascular surgeons who, who are supportive, but they're, they're less conversational about peripheral vascular cases than the IR docs are with me. I agree. I, th- I think a lot of it is, um, geographic you know there's different cultures in different cities and you know and a lot of that starts from you know practices that have been around for decades and it and it kind of just uh, the culture continues um and so yeah it's it's funny you say that Charles, because in dallas it seems like vascular surgery and ir work pretty well together and for whatever reason you know the there's the the only the only turf battles seem to be with with interventional cardiology for whatever reason um and again it's probably it probably just has to do with local personalities and and sort of you know the culture of these big groups i I think it's going to become a moot point with time because um you know as patients go out well it could go two ways but you know if the system kind of supports patients going out and finding their own doctors and you're bringing in the cases yourself you know that's a situation where there, there is no turf war because it's your patient and you brought them in from an outpatient right. setting, right? There, there's nothing to discuss, right? And we see that with, with outpatient venous disease, right? You know, whoever yeah. brings in the patient can do, can do the work. Um, you know, of course, I guess the, the, the uh, healthcare in, in the United States could go the other way too, where everything becomes systemic. And then, you know, these things are being, the, the pies are being, you know, cut up at the top levels and it'll, it'll all be related to money, I think. I think I think one of the points you touched on when you when you touched on when you said something about local personalities, I, I think that geography plays a big part in it. You know, I think of New Orleans as I wouldn't say it's an underserved area, but I mean not by any stretch. Um, but I think there's less competition here than in some of the places like uh, practicing uh, interventional uh, cardiologists and radiologists in places like the Northeast or California or um, some more major metropolitan areas. I think when there's less work to go around, then it more becomes a turf battle. Yeah. I think that we've done some podcasts in, in the past when we talked to people who are in, in extremely underserved areas and they're like, turf battles don't exist. We're just dying to get someone who can help. Right. It, it's all about you know, right. finding someone who can help and has the patient's best interest at heart. I, and so, you know, my advice is, or maybe not advice, but my observation is that, you know, if you just always go in, Think of the patient first and, and try and be friendly and collaborative. You'll, you'll find out what kind of environment you're in pretty quickly. Yeah. And most people with time will respond to, you know, I think yeah. if you're practicing good medicine and taking care of patients, that, that, that trumps everything. And with time, even, um, you know, colleagues that you may be having difficulty with usually warm up and, and there's a relationship to be had there. 
Yeah, and the and the biggest criticism that I always heard of IRs in the past and when it came to these little turf battles was was that we didn't have clinic and therefore we couldn't follow our patients after procedures. And um, I think that that is changing because now all our training programs, um, the, it's an IR residency, not a fellowship, and and that's going to include um, a much more clinical time and in, in with the residency because there's more. There are more surgical rotations, um, and and a lot of these programs, these fellow, these residency programs have IR clinic, so the trainees are going to come out and expect that in their practice. It's not going to be, it's going to be harder for them to join a big diagnostic group that doesn't allow for IR clinic time. So I think that that, like you said, Atral, that's going to continue to change over time. Agreed. Yeah, clinic. I think clinic would be great from a uh, for the specialty. I think yeah. That- That'll be advantageous. Um, so let's talk a little bit. Um, Chris had made mention of, you know, how and why we do things differently. Um, and we do learn from each other. Like I mentioned, you know, there was, an, you know, when I came out of fellowship, I didn't, I don't think I'd ever done a transradial case. And I had a an intervention cardiologist who was very gracious and uh, was uh, helping me learn how to uh, transradial access. And you know, this, for IR, transradial access has become like, you know, a big thing over the last five to six years, uh, where a, a lot of a lot of outpatient cases, uh, fibroid embolization, um, you know, even some peripheral arterial disease is being done transradial now. And so, um, I just wanted to kind of talk to you guys about what other differences. I mean, now we're you know, obviously IR is learning from cardiology in that sense. Um, in terms of safety of the safety of transradial access, the convenience, the you know the patients love it. You know, what are the things have you seen where um, IRs and ICs are learning from each other? Yeah, it's it's funny you, you mentioned radial uh, access. We had um, the chief of IR at, at Tulane actually was talking to me about radial access cases, and we were talking back and forth uh, about it. And I guess at at um, where we're currently, the IR docs. Um, you know, don't do a lot of radial cases. So they, you know, we've discussed that a bunch and showed them how we do radial access. And, and, um, and I, you know, I imagine they'll be incorporating into their practice based on discussions we've had and, and our ability to show them. That's kind of, you know, the, the other thing, sorry, just to digress for a second, the other thing about collaboration, you know, we all get kind of, uh, um, you know, there's a lot of discussion about physician burnout and, and us just, you know, running, spinning the wheel basically and, and losing sight of, of what we enjoy. And I think one of the great things about our job and collaboration is the flow of information and, and kind of discussing uh, approaches to cases and things like that. And, uh, you know, as you were talking about your experience with your, you know, fellow interventional cardiologists and they showing you something simple like radial access. I mean, these are the nice things in medicine and there's a huge advantage in collaboration there and, and job satisfaction. So. Yeah, and along the thread of, of radial access, which um, we, we were actually trained in radial access, and it, it wasn't a major part of the practice, but it, we used it for select liver interventions and fibroid embolizations. But one of the things that, at, you know, when we were talking about, like, some of the advantages to sharing cath lab personnel, that whenever I decided I was the first IR in my group that decided I was going to start doing radial cases, had I been in an exclusive IR lab, it would have been retraining techs, nurses to kind of understand room setup, medications that we're going to need to have on hand. But because I was already in a lab that was shared with interventional cardiology, 
as soon as I said I wanted to do radial access, it was like, no problem. And it was near seamless. And uh, to take that one step further, uh, you know, as far as like, you know, closing the the radial artery, I, I trust my tech so much. I mean, they're closing more radial arteries than I am. And so as soon as I'm done with the case, I pull the catheter and I walk out the room and, you know, I start doing the note in the control room and, you know, they're, they're busy, you know, kind of setting up the sheath for removal and, and setting up the TR band. Similar to the interventional cardiologist in that same exact lab teaching me transradial, I was able to return the favor by, by teaching them how to do loop snare technique um, for a tricky filter retrieval. And, um, you know, again, for what, for whatever reason in, in his fellowship, they, they didn't do a lot of filter retrievals, but in practice they were doing a lot of placements and retrievals. And so, um, it was just kind of another place where it, you were able to kind of trade, uh, trade these little tips and techniques, um, which makes it, which makes it nice. So, um, yeah, w- along the, along the vein of, of filter retrievals, I was actually, I can't tell you how many times that just by walking through or just by having a shared space with cardiology, how many cases that have been referred to me. One, one example I was thinking of, I was, I was watching a cardiologist. I was going in to do a case. I don't remember what case it was. And I saw this filter. He was about to retrieve it. And the filter tip was completely embedded, embedded in the IVC. And I I saw the venogram before I went in. And then as I was coming out, I saw him uh, trying to use the, uh, um, the loop to snare the tip of the filter. And I mean, he was going through all the right steps, but at the end of it, I I found him when he came out and he wasn't able to retrieve the filter. And I said, you know, I think this would be a good one to, you know, do a loop snare technique or do a modified hangman's where you, you know, retrieve the filter tip or you uh, snare the tip of the filter and and then pop it off the sidewall and then, you know, do traditional uh, techniques to remove it. Um, We didn't actually do the case together, but he, he, he was just kind of thinking to himself, he's a little bit of an older cardiologist. He's like, as I was explaining the process to him, he was like, how about this? He's like, I'm just going to let this guy, um, you know, go home today. And he's like, we'll bring him back in a, a month. And he's like, I'll just send him to you. And I was like, Oh, that's fantastic. Yeah. I think, you know, it's a win-win. I was just happened to walk by while he was doing this difficult filter retrieval yeah. and kind of acquired a case because we happened to be in the control room at the same time. Uh, the other thing I wanted to touch on was, um, I've noticed, uh, or just, you know, on the word on the street, um, hearing about these outpatient, uh, you know, outpatient labs, OBLs, and a lot of them being staffed by a combination of vascular surgery, uh, vascular surgeons, interventional radiologists, interventional cardiologists. So you see them working all together a lot of times as part of the same practice or as independent contractors in these OBLs. Um, which is which is a neat uh, concept, and um, I hope the trend continues because it, it's led to a lot of collaboration in the outpatient setting. There's a whole um, society called Outpatient Endovascular Interventional Society, Outpatient Endovascular and Interventional Society (OEIS), and they have a conference every year. And I, w- I had the opportunity to go to the, this last year's conference, and um, it's it's pretty amazing, um, you know the the information that's presented at this conference uh, and how useful it is and um, just neat seeing, you know, all three specialties get up on stage and, and tell similar stories and, and stories about collaborating. So I urge you guys, if you have any interest, uh, it, it was a definitely worthwhile conference. Um, and I think it's a worthwhile society to to uh, contribute to, to help continue the collaboration. 
actually had uh, one backup background question for Achal in that what does an interventional cardiology training look like in, in terms of like when, once you get out, I mean, I, I know most people are doing in, uh, not intern years. You do three years of residency as internal medicine, then you go into cardiology. But I always got a little fuzzy about what happened after the cardiology fellowship or the cardiology fellowship and then whether people went on to do additional fellowships and more interventional. And so I just wanted to hear sure. a little bit more about the yeah. training. Yeah. So cardiology training um, has, um, you know, has kind of um, changed over there as it used to be, you know, three years of internal medicine or probably less, you know, in the eighties and nineties, and then two or three years of cardiology uh, fellowship. And then, you know, a lot of these things were new. So if you want to become an EP doctor, you'd kind of fashion yourself as an EP doctor and learn on the go. Same thing with interventional cardiology. I think in the late nineties, they started having dedicated fellowships. And, and since then we've, we, I don't know why necessarily, but we're creating more and more fellowships. So a standard training would be three years of internal medicine, three years of general cardiology or non-invasive cardiology, and then the opportunity to, um, to do multiple different subspecialties. And some people do multiple. So I, for example, did an interventional cardiology fellowship, which was one year. And then I did an extra fellowship in peripheral vascular intervention. Um, so I, I did eight years. There's heart failure training. There's imaging training. There's MRI training versus uh, CTA training. Uh, echo training, it, it, it gets pretty, um, there's structural training now as well. So there's actually, believe it or not, there's three separate interventional fellowships you could do after your general cardiology fellowship. That's pretty impressive. I, uh, yeah, it's certainly a broad scope or spectrum of disease that cardiology is trying to manage. All right, Chris, on the same note for our cardiology listeners, can you explain the training for IR? Because they not, may not be familiar with how we get trained. That's a good point. I may not be even the best person to do this anymore because, <laughs> at, at, you know, as you know, it's it's been in flux. But so traditionally, the way I was trained, and, and I'm almost positive the way you were trained, Fritz, was one intern year. So one year intern year could be an internal medicine surgery or whatever, and then you did four years of diagnostic radiology, followed by one year or possibly two years of interventional radiology. And so interventional radiology was a one year or possibly two year fellowship, and now. And now everyone moving forward is going to be interventional radiology residents that go on to actually don't even go on. It's just interventional radiology residency. And there's not really an interventional radiology fellowship anymore. It's been phased out and been replaced with the residency. How long is that interventional radiology residency? Six, six years, right? Still six years. So it'd be like three general radiology and then three interventional or some what, sort of. What, they, what they've done is they've kind of woven into the, the fabric of the training that your intern year is a surgical-based year. ICU months, clinic, vascular surgery months are built into these rotations. And then diagnostic radiology is built in, all peppered throughout. And then as you're kind of marching through each year, you're doing increasing uh, numbers or increasing months of dedicated interventional radiology. So you get less diagnostic radiology, more clinical-based um, cross-training between vascular surgery. What else? Vascular surgery, ICU training, and then um, a lot of interventional radiology peppered in there. All right. You know, one interesting problem we're having from a procedural basis is um, is we're having trouble uh, with volume. There's been big changes in volumes for our trainees. Have you guys been experiencing that? I, I would say, and, and I don't, I'm, I'm not going to pretend to be one of the guys with my fingers in the pulse of how training is, is going, but it's, it's been my experience that 
interventional radiology volume is on the up in general in terms of people are we're getting into spaces that we previously previously haven't been in on top of where advancing different areas that we have already existed in. Um, I think of like some of the body work that we're, we've been doing. Like I think everyone has placed cholecystostomy tubes or tubes that go directly into the gallbladder to treat acute cholecystitis in non-surgical patients. And now, you know, when I think about like some, one of the extreme IR podcasts that we did with Jeff Chick, you know, now people are segueing that into using that track into the gallbladder to do, you know, stone removal cases. And, and that's just one example of that, you know, it was previously a very basic procedure and now it's getting more advanced in terms of like the biliary work that we are doing. What, what do you think about the volume of interventional radiology, Fritz? Yeah, I agree with you. I mean, you know, just six or seven years ago, people were saying, oh, IR doesn't do peripheral vascular disease anymore. Um, and then, you know, now there's this resurgence where people are taking that. I don't know. I don't know if you want to say taking it back, but, you know, the younger IRs are coming out, you know, better trained for it and more hungry for it. Um, so I think in, in terms of peripheral vascular, and, and we see more of it, for example, SIR is bringing the learn conference back, which is focused on, you know, peripheral vascular disease. And that had disappeared for, I think five or six years. And so I think that IRs are being more clinically focused. There's a lot, you know, a lot more IRs are the young IRs are coming out wanting to have a clinic, wanting to, you know, be more clinic, uh, clinically focused and not sitting in the, in the reading room and, and reading diagnostic all day long. Um, so I, I, for whatever reason, I don't know what's behind it. Maybe it's, maybe that's it's efforts from our society. Um, but yes, I do think that we are doing more than we were even five or six years ago. Yeah. When I talk to some of the trainees who are getting, so I trained at Georgetown for fellowship. And when I talk to the guys who are training now, and, and not to say that my training was subpar or or lacking in any way. I thought it was a very well-rounded program. And that the cases that they're doing now, it's they're doing more cases, more difficult cases. And so, you know, from my perspective, a very limited sample size, you know, just my training program already looks much better in terms of volume and level of difficulty and technical skill than what it was three years ago. I'm only at three years, sorry, four years ago. I was there four years ago. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I think in interventional cardiology, we've seen the complexity increase at the major medical centers or in the urban areas. But what's, what's happened is the overall volume for each individual institution has gone down significantly. And I, I think it's because we have too many labs or too many hospitals. But, you know, I'm being selfish in my evaluation of that. Right. Well, I agree um, with you. I mean, there's all you're right. There's I mean, in Dallas, we have just ton. There's a hospital. It seems like on every street corner. And there's, there's incredible competition for these facilities to bring in patients. And, um, but there's also all these outpatient labs opening up as well. And so that might be responsible for some of that decrease in volume at the hospitals. Yeah. And we're, we're overtraining too. I don't know if yeah. you guys are running into that problem. I think historically we have undertrained. Yeah. That's <laughs> <laughs> Cardiologists like to shoot themselves in the foot. It seems like at least they have been for the last 20 years. Do you guys ever use CO2 angiography? We do. We have it available to us at Tulane, the medical center, and we use it occasionally. I, I one of my uh, colleagues, who's who's a you know very skilled peripheral interventionalist, um, uses it routinely on his renal failure patients. I I tend to um, you know I, I acute renal failure related to contrast induced nephropathy seems to be 
less of an issue than it than it used to be, and it's certainly, I think, uh, lower risk now than it was before. So, uh, you know, there, there there may be a time that I'll use it every now and then, but I don't use it routinely. I just knew that you guys were over to Lane, and I know that they have a really robust CO two. I mean, I, I think like to do. I think the techs are very well trained on it. Yes, no problem. Yeah, absolutely. This is the first institution that I've that I've used it with. Uh, with again, guidance from my colleagues and even some of the some of the techs who are, who are familiar with it. And um, yeah, I've used it. It's come in handy. And uh, you know, I think you know. I mean, listen. Depending on the the workup going in, sometimes based on the non-invasive imaging, you know where the issue is, sure. right? And you need a, a half a picture to clear your, um, you know, um, to move on to the next step, and and it can be helpful in that situation, or as a diagnostic and, and staged intervention, it can be helpful. But um, but yeah, we we have it and, and we use it sometimes. The images are certainly not as good as DSA, absolutely, as you do. Okay. Expect. The other thing I was going to mention in terms of just having to hang around um, the cath lab suite lingering like I, I put in all my notes and all my order sets as i'm leaving the case i've gotten two really fun cases very recently in terms of bifurcating lemas that the cardiologist happened to bring me over and he's like hey take a look at this right it yep so uh, a child just asked me he's like oh coil it and and yeah so the cardiologist asked me to get involved to do uh, a cooling case and it's a very straightforward, very, very simple procedure, but not one that I had ever done in fellowship. Wow. I mean, certainly we have skills that are translatable to a lot of different things, like putting a coil. It's just in a different blood vessel. Um, but those were two kind of fun cases that uh, I've enjoyed and that I just happened to get by walking through the cath lab at the right time. And actually, I probably got the first one just by walking through at the right time. The second one, they kind of found me out um, when I was happened to be um, kind of nearby. So explain like, why you coil it and, you know, just can, can you just quickly run us through that case? Actually, let me tell you what I know about that case and I'll mm-hmm. let a, a Chal actually explain it because this was, I actually presented this at one of my NGO clubs. And one of the things that I really liked about this case, I mean, there's always this move to become very clinical and longitudinal care and seeing these people pre-op and post-op. I did absolutely none of that. I mean, literally the cardiologist was like, this is the lima, which I could recognize. And you see the branch that's going to the heart. And then you see the branch that's going to the thoracic sidewall. And I just literally radial access, dunked a rim catheter into the lima, did a DSA, and then put a micro catheter in a couple coils in like the bifurcating branch, the branch that was not going to the heart. And yeah. that's the extent of what I knew about it. I met the patient once pre-op and then never saw him again. But I've had I've had assurance from the cardiologist afterwards that it worked and it was successful. But that was my that my total knowledge of the case going into it. So, yeah, so it's like I, it's stealing blood flow away. Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So that situation's a, a steel syndrome, and maybe the patient had significant uh, coronary ischemia in their anterior wall. That's usually where the surgeon attaches the lima graft to the the left anterior uh, descending, which which um, provides <clears throat> blood flow to the anterior wall of the heart. So maybe the patient had uh, symptoms. Or and or an abnormal stress test that showed ischemia in the anterior wall, and the interventional cardiologist or cardiologist wanted uh, that that lateral IMA branch um, closed off. Usually, the surgeons will 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 tie off those branches, but every now and then we'll sh- we'll shoot a lima, and 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 they are some residual branches that that may or may not be causing steel. Yeah, that is. Would you would you have felt comfortable uh, coiling? I, you know, a, as you're saying it, so the the major thing you have to worry about when you're when you're in those procedures would be uh, causing damage to the lima because you lose flow to the anterior wall. So maybe if it's a proximal, I'm assuming it was a proximal branch or yeah, pretty yeah, proximal. Yeah, so it, it's that's a safer situation. And really, those those lemas uh, can be delicate, especially when you're engaging 
uh, your guide catheters, um, you know, at the ostium and you, you have to be really mindful and, and careful not to dissect. Essentially, that's that's the main thing. That, that's that's what you have to worry about. Um, and then, of course, you know, anything else, any other situation where you may compromise flow to the LAD, you have to worry about. Well, thanks again to our guests for coming on, Chris and Nachal. Um, I just want to thank our sponsor, RadPad, again um, for for sponsoring this this episode. And uh, yeah, thanks again, guys. Have a good Sunday. Thank you.